The materials disclosed on this podcast are deemed to be sales desk literature and subject to our client communication policy and code of conduct, as well as IROC rules. Uh, yeah, I think the Fed, what they did last week was really smart because they basically gave themselves max degrees of freedom. They could dial it up, dial it down as they need to see fit. So, you know, I, I don't think we can just kind of linearly say 15 billion a month and that puts us eight months out before we're done. I think they could speed it up when they want to. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the FX Factor podcast. This is our first one in quite some time, and we're back by popular demand. And we've got an extra special episode for you this time around. We've got our global head of fixed strategy, Ian Pollock, joining us today. Ian, welcome back. How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Excellent, excellent. So first things first, there's a lot of really interesting things happening in the rate space. And I figured this would be a great time to bring uh, someone like you on with your expertise in the area. Why don't we start off with what's going on in the short end, man? For the non-rates focused audience out there, what's been happening there? What's been the main story driving things? Well, listen, there's obviously been quite a lot of themes jam-packed into a really, really short period of time. And you know, I think you could kind of trace back the origins of the move that we've really seen in global short ends to the Bank of England. Remember, it was the Bank of England, you know, six, seven weeks ago that really started to talk quite hawkishly about inflation. And that really started to put something in the minds of, you know, global participants being, well, what if transitory isn't transitory? What if high inflation readings in some of the small open economies actually are going to warrant faster rate hikes? And what ended up happening was that, you know, CTAs, which are commodity trading advisors, you can think of them as systematic accounts or programmatic accounts. They basically attacked every single market where there was a lot of premia. And, and it just turned out that the markets with the most amount of premia were all the smaller Anglo economies. So whether it be New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the UK, to a lesser extent, the US. And, and what you found is that, you know, that coincided with an IMF meeting at the end of August, early September. And, you know, it felt almost very coordinated because after that point, what we found is that all these central banks turned very hawkish in a very short period of time. And that's the type of you know, sequencing of events that feeds upon itself. And that's why you saw so much weakness in the short end of the curve. Mm -hmm. And give us an example of how egregious some of the pricing is there. What are markets currently expecting from the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada right now? So, you know, just for some perspective, you know, you got to a point where you were pricing in four rate hikes from the Bank of Canada before the Bank of Canada met two weeks ago. You know, relative to our own forecast, that was clearly uh, a pace that we did not think was going to be able to be achieved. But then once the Bank of Canada met and actually turned hawkish, at one point you had like seven and a half hikes price for 2022. Now, that's come down since. Uh, obviously, global rates have rallied over the past week or so. But what it shows you is what happens when you have e-liquidity meeting hawkish surprises, or to say another way, when you have leverage and surprises, you create volatility. And the volatility was very much concentrated in the front end of global curves. Right. And does this have anything to do with the fact that we're now, I guess, I don't want to say we've completely and permanently shifted to this new sort of macro framework of higher inflation, uh, but certainly it looks like there feels like there's a transition at, at play here. Uh, and would it be accurate to say that there's some degree of volatility with the way the market's perceiving central banks and the reaction functions as we've moved uh, into this sort of new uh, phase, let's call it, of uh, higher inflation? Well, listen, I don't know if I would call it a phase of higher inflation. I think I would characterize it, Bips 
really as a phase of understanding what the word transitory means. Because I think that's been the biggest problem this year is that if you can't define something and you're going to use that language repeatedly, and it wasn't just one central bank, it was basically every developed market central bank was using that phrase transitory inflation. But it meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, you know, to economists, it meant uh, a year-over-year deceleration in the rate of change. To other people, it meant just a move back to 2% permanently. To some market participants, they started to realize, you know, maybe it actually means just a higher price level in general, and maybe that's actually bad for growth. And so when you have this kind of lack of understanding what the word means, you can't use it in a homogenous way. I think the biggest thing for me, the biggest startling realization over the past really six weeks is just the speed of transition away from what was the reaction function over the past decade since the financial crisis. And really, that was one of low growth, low inflation, which meant patience. Um, and, and I think that you're now at levels of inflation, whether it's 4% or 5%, that are actually far away enough from target, it does create a lot of discomfort uh, from policymakers. And so I think just as equally frustrated we are with misunderstanding or trying to understand the evolution of inflation, I think they are as well. And have they been extremely vocal on it? Yes. Have they been entirely transparent? I'd say no. There was a relatively abrupt shift. Um, but I think it's it's that communication shift coupled with the fact that no one really understands what the word means. And now we're all understanding that we're coalescing around this kind of higher for longer inflation regime. And that's going to create volatility. Look, I mean, we did get the Bank of England last week that kind of caught markets a bit off guard with the non-hike and especially the communication with respect to you know them pushing back as to what the market's priced in. And look, there was a bit of a correction there. But ultimately, I mean, we're still pricing in, what, around just over five uh, hikes for the Bank of Canada next year. Uh, we've still got egregious pricing for some of the other smaller Anglo uh, central banks as well. What do you think brings this market back to reality? What will, you know, what, what does the market need to see before ultimately realizing that, you know, it's not realistic to, to expect the, these central banks to hike by, to this degree? So, uh, you know, I guess the first question I would pose back on you is, you know, what do you think would need to happen to validate this. Let's take the counter the counter to this because I, I'd be curious from an FX perspective, what in your mind makes all this happen and realize the forwards? Yeah, I mean, if I'm a policymaker and I'm leaning into this move, kind of similar to what they what Macklin did uh, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I'm really waiting for the data to come out and really materialize and, and really send the message to the market that, look, you know, some of the egregious pricing we're seeing is, is ultimately not likely. Right. And I know we talked about this beforehand as well. But if you look back over the past couple of quarters, the Bank Canada is well behind their growth projections for Q2 and for Q3. Now, can they make this up in Q4 and Q1? Um, that's going to be a tougher call to see. And maybe we need to see some more data come out before you know, that's ultimately the market gets the message that yes you know ultimately while the timing of the first rate hike you know may have been brought forward I, I think the distribution of rate hikes needs to be reassessed and that comes down to a data story in my view I mean do you see that similarly from your vantage point or would you push back against that no I think so I mean listen I, I've said for quite some time you know our view has been that I can't quibble too much with where terminal rates are being priced in Canada um, I don't really care about the endpoint per se. I care about the path to get to that endpoint. And to, to what you were saying earlier, you know, you are talking about a very fast sequential pace of rate hikes. And, and there's a couple of things worth mentioning uh, that maybe could validate at least some of that pricing. 
On the one hand, remember that yesterday we got uh, news that Statistics Canada had revised its growth series. What we saw is that expenditure-based GDP or real GDP on a quarterly basis was actually increased from 2018 all the way to you know Q2 2021. And what it did was it raised the level of GDP by about four-tenths. Now, if you drill down a bit further, what we found is that most of that growth was actually coming from investment. And that's a really important distinction because it means that you could have this higher level of GDP, but it doesn't necessarily do anything to the output gap because in theory, if all the growth is coming from investment, then potential growth should be higher. So I don't think that it means that potential growth or the output gap has closed even further. I just think it means that we entered the recession on a stronger footing and we exited it on a stronger footing as well. The the other thing too, I think to realize is that when you get closer to 2022, It's this idea that how do you organically grow out of this pricing? Well, you have to get to every sequential meeting. And when you get to those meetings and there's inaction, that's when you're going to start to see some convergence. Now, I don't think you're at a point in time that's going to take all the pricing out right away. You know, obviously, if God forbid something happened where COVID turned to a deadlier phase than what we're in right now, that's something that would clearly stop the pricing in its path. But in in a very conservative view of the world, and it's a status quo view, This pricing is not likely to go away until you get closer to the meetings. And then every meeting you go through, you kind of drop off a little bit. And I think that's going to be very frustrating for bond investors. Yeah. yeah, And it could be frustrating for macro traders as well. I mean, if we're talking about every central bank meeting having some embedded uh, event risk premium priced in, then look, we're going to have to be really, really mindful of what's priced in going into the meeting and really, really have uh, a keen sense of what might be said and how that might impact markets. So I'm very much with you there, Ian. Well, I think so. And, and I think it's this idea of kind of organic remediation. It's like, you know, you know, you can't you can't really dismiss the counterintuitive or the counterfactual just yet. You have to get closer to the time. And, you know, I would say that the, the shift in message from the Bank of Canada was very specific. And they are basically foregoing uh, an earlier closure of the outlook gap or slack being absorbed rapidly to allow for inflation to come back to target. And I think all the messaging that we've heard is very consistent with a discussion to the non-traders, the non-strategists, the non-economists. It's to the everyday Canadian reminding them them that they have inflation under control. And what that practically means, I think, is that they're trying to dissuade unmooring of inflation expectations from becoming something that's a bit more broad-based in nature. Now, you know, I'm going to turn this over to you because, you know, you're, you're obviously the subject matter expert in foreign exchange markets. When I look at Dollar Canada and I look at uh, the relative path of hikes for 2022, just from a really simple perspective, because I'm not an FX guy, why is dollar CAD not higher or lower? Why, why is the Canadian dollar not more expensive? Right. So that's a very good question. I've been asked that a few times. Uh, and you hit it on earlier. I mean, it's not just a made in Canada story, even though we have seen a significant repricing of the Bank of Canada. What we have to remember is that we're seeing the shift in short rates globally. And that's important because, again, remember that the exchange rate fundamentally is a relative asset. So you're really comparing the level of uh, rates in one jurisdiction to the other. And, you know, I don't just want to say that there's only one factor that drives an exchange rate because clearly there are several others as well. Uh, And there is this inbuilt or at least a built-in bias when it comes to owning U.S. dollars over the coming years as well, given the fact that the narrative has shifted quite uh, significantly since the, the June FOMC meeting. 
So there's two reasons there. One, you have seen a move in uh, short rates in Canada, and ultimately that is going to matter for the Canadian dollar. But also you've seen a parallel shift or close to parallel shift in the United States as well. Uh, even though that spread is still very much in the favor of uh, owning the CAD asset, the other thing to remember is that the market is still very much of the view that uh, the dollar will strengthen in the coming years. And those you have two countervailing forces there that are really uh, helping to keep uh, you know realized volatility in FX somewhat grounded relative to what you would expect to see if it was just the Bank of Canada being priced egregiously. So I think that's the predominant reason there. Now, I'm going to ask you another question, Ian. I think this is a question that a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested in when it comes to inflation. And look, we've all heard the narrative like this is a supply shock. This is uh, driven by really the disruption of global supply chains and maybe you know a few factors such as the lack of equity when it comes to vaccine distribution on a global basis that are really driving prices higher. And there's not really much that central banks could do. But what I do think that uh, a lot of policymakers are concerned about is to what degree inflation expectations will be impacted. And I think that has a time function you know, embedded into it. Do you subscribe to that theory at all? Is this the reason why the central banks uh, are getting more and more concerned with you know something in theory that they have really no control over when it comes to policymaking. Well, I think so, right? Because you know we've heard from academics, we've heard from non-academics, and it's one simple message. You know, monetary policy cannot fix supply chain disruptions that cause inflation, and that's true. But it gets back to an earlier point I made. It's this idea that you know if we read our economics 101 textbooks it will say quite clearly that you know when inflation is rising you lose your purchasing power of money and therefore you consume at a faster rate and i think the worry here is that when you look at the price level that's uh, exceeding income growth is exceeding wage growth you actually may get the opposite outcome where consumption gets restricted and the bedrock of every macro forecast in the world right now is that you do get a drawdown in this excess savings rate the Bank of Canada itself is assuming that Canadians draw down at least 20% of their excess savings. And if you don't get that, then all of a sudden your consumption path is uh, impaired. And therefore, you know, your growth estimates have no shot of actually being realized. So I think it's more that they are concerned the longer this persists, which to be clear, and they have kind of mea culpa this, that it is persisting longer than they thought. Even Kashkari at the Fed said he thought that inflation was lasting longer. And, you know, I almost fell off my chair when I read that headline. So I think it's to your point. It's just that to not destabilize the inflation making process, they want to be seen as they're getting ahead of it. I think it's as simple as that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the channel that uh, they're concerned about and uh, very much echo everything you just said there. Now, let's shift gears a little bit because uh, the short rates market isn't the only interesting area in the in the rate space. Let's talk about the dynamics of the long end. And uh, again, given the reduction in, in asset purchases, and of course, the Fed announced theirs last week, um, why are long end rates uh, so bit at this point? Why are we seeing yields move lower? And by extension, uh, why are curves flattening, even though you know prior episodes of tapering have really steepened curves and led to more of a, a premium being built in the long end? Well, it's, listen, it's a great question. Let's just back up a little bit and let's just talk about uh, the curve and what it likes to do ahead of a hiking cycle. If you kind of look back and, and really in any market in the world, roughly nine months, a year, Prior to the beginning of a rate hiking cycle, yield curves flatten. And that's simply because all the pressures on a repricing of very short-term interest rates, that occurs you know, between your five-year point of the curve, your two-year point, your one-year point. But the back end of the curve, your 10-year yield, your 30-year yield, those really collect the average policy rate over a much longer period of time. So it's almost like a cash flow where you change a very, very backdated cash flow. It doesn't actually do all that much. And you know, typically, we would expect curves to flatten in. 
The problem, as you rightly say, though, is that long end yields are actually falling and it's moving in such a way that we will characterize it as a bull flattening move, which just means that the curve is flattening by longer term interest rates rallying more than short term rates. Typically, when you see that happening, that's a signal that growth is about to slow down, that there's concern about the health of the economy, which is in stark contrast to how the front end of the curve is talking. So it's almost like there's this you know, inherent tension between the back end of the curve, the short end of the curve, because every time that we've heard uh, a hawkish speech, there's been a hawkish innovation coming from a central bank meeting, we've seen this dynamic where the back end of the curve actually outright rallies. So when we think about it, it's almost as if the front end is telling central bankers to hike, the back end is telling them they're making a policy error. So how do you square that difference? You brought up a good point, right? And if you look back at most instances of prior QE reductions or tapering episodes, the curve has always steepened. And the reason the curve has steepened is because you've needed to rebuild term premium, which is just really a way to think about how you compensate investors for owning very long duration assets. And the reason for that is because you're just effectively removing or you're transferring a supply uh, from the public sector to the private sector. The difference this time is that when the Fed announced their tapering program, the supply being transferred from the public sector to the private sector actually declined because issuance on the gross level had declined because tax revenues are coming in better. Now, if you compare and contrast this to the 2013 tapering episode, you found that when the Fed tapered in 2013 or talked about tapering, the amount of duration supply that would have to be absorbed by the private sector was much, much larger than it is today. So I think there's some concern that, number one, the policymakers are making a mistake by hiking too early, but at the same time that there may not be enough bond supply for the private sector to absorb because issuance is falling, call it 12, 15% in 2022. Now, these are all really nice stories in theory. I don't know how much they hold up in practice. And I think practically, if we're going to be a very, very conservative in our analysis, I simply looked at positioning. And what we found is that of all the positioning right now in U.S. rates, the biggest amount of shorts being taken back are in the very long end of the curve. So it may just have been very bad curve positioning. People expecting steepeners they are starting to take back that steepening trend. They're starting to own more longer in duration. But I agree with you. It's a very confusing signal. Right. So I'm going to ask you now, uh, does this trend continue over the over the coming months or you know, do we see some degree of uh, increase in term premiums as more supply is released back into the market? Well, look, I, I am very biased in the near term to expect the curve to steepen out because uh, I think we've entered a bit prematurely into the hiking cycle at very, very flat levels. And when I look at levels in Canada, I look at levels in the UK. The risk, of course, is that because you're starting from such a flat level that you could actually be in an inverted yield curve environment partway through the hiking cycle. It doesn't make sense on a few reasons. Number one is we know that, for example, the health of the financial sector is very much uh, aligned with the amount of term premium in the yield curve. And that just means that net interest margin and term premium kind of move together. And so when you think about maturity transformation, credit intermediation, it becomes that much more difficult in an inverted yield curve environment. I don't think that policymakers would want to support that type of move. Number two is when you think about what the Bank of England has told us what their intentions are from a sequencing perspective. They've drawn an arbitrary line in the sand in terms of a policy rate that they will have to reach before they actively allow the balance sheet to roll off and another arbitrary level to which they start to actually do active quantitative tightening, which is to sell assets. Markets are not appropriately priced for that type of outcome in other markets. 
And I think particularly when I look at the Bank of Canada's balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet, there's not enough tribute being paid to a potential mid-cycle pause. And it's that mid-cycle pause that allows the balance sheet to roll off, bonds to be sold uh, organically or inorganically, that actually introduces more term premium to the curve. So I would, I would say this in simple terms to answer your question, I don't think there's enough price right now in terms of that mid-cycle pause. And therefore, I see the path of least resistance in the very near term to be a steeper yield curve. But as we get into 2022, it goes back to this modus operandi where you you enter into a hiking cycle and the curve is supposed to flatten out. Now, let me ask you this. Um, From a rates market perspective, we often wonder about how does the shape of the curve impact currency valuations? Does it impact currency valuations? Not frequently, no. Uh, I think what matters mostly in terms of a pass-through to the currency market is really what's happening at the front end. Uh, the thing to remember about uh, foreign exchange is that at the end of the day, it's a residual asset. Uh, really, you have to be a macro analyst. You have to understand what's happening in the rates market. You have to understand what's happening with respect to flows and equities and whatnot. And it's really that the net result of everything and understanding really what factor is most important at a particular time uh, you know, that's how you get a sense of how the exchange rate is going to move. So it's it's not so much, you know, what's happening with respect to the shape of a curve. But if you're telling me, you know, uh, over the near term, we expect the, you know, the, the Treasury, the front end of the Treasury market to underperform relative to, say, the Canadian uh, yield market, uh, then that to me tells me that I need to go long dollar cap. Or at least there's a factor in favor of uh, being long dollar cat. And usually what we see is that as the closer we get to central banks lifting off, uh, it usually is the front end of the yield curve that emerges as the most important driver of a particular currency pair. So, I mean, to answer your question in, you know, in simple terms, it's really all about what the front end is, is doing. A couple of questions for you. Let's do some rapid fire here, Ian. What are you expecting in terms of rate hikes from the Bank of Canada next year? Actually, let me start off with this. When do you expect the Bank Canada to hike first and how many times are they going to hike in 2022? So right now we're looking for the Bank Canada to start lift off at the July NPR. We think they follow up again with a secondary rate hike in October. You know, I would say that in my gut, uh, it may be a little bit late. I could see a move as early as April, but I do think that it could be a two hike year, not a three hike year. Okay. That answered my next question, actually. What are the risks that you... So what needs to happen in order to shift that from, say, July to April? Listen, I think there, there's two things, right? We saw the labor market data. It continues to come in relatively strong. Hours worked looked very good. And that portends that the weakness that we've seen in the last two quarters of growth output could change quite abruptly as you get into Q4 and Q1. So if you are in an environment where you do get a slowdown in business investment and potential is as low as the Bank of Canada says it is, and you make ongoing gains in the job market, and even just CPI hangs around here, I think that could augur for an April hike potentially. And you know, once you introduce April, it's very hard to dissuade the market from pricing in a three, four hike year. Okay. Now, what about the FOMC? When's the first rate hike from the Fed? And also, how many are you expecting for 2022? So I, th- I feel a bit more comfortable in my projection for the Fed. You know, we as a house, as you know, see two hikes from the FOMC next year. The first one coming in June, the second one coming in September. I think that's probably early enough. I, I think this is a Fed that is countenancing patience. And given just the shift that we could potentially see Brainer take over as chair, you know, not advocating for that whatsoever. But, you know, obviously, if that were to happen, that's a, it's a bit slower. And therefore, I'm actually pretty comfortable with our calls. I find it very difficult to pull that forward at this point. Right. And I mean, do, does that matter that we have the Fed entering its uh, tapering program by June and then immediately starting rate hikes? Are we OK with that call? 
Uh, yeah, I think the Fed, what they did last week was really smart because they basically gave themselves max degrees of freedom. They could dial it up, dial it down as they need to see fit. So, you know, I, I don't think we can just kind of linearly say $15 billion a month and that puts us eight months out. Therefore, we're done. I think they could speed it up when they want to. Okay, excellent. And what trades do you like to capitalize on those views? So, you know, for me, I like the idea of curve divergence between Canada and the United States. And it's this idea that you have so much price for the Bank of Canada, it's very hard for our curve uh, to price them more. And therefore, if you do enter into a sustained flattening trend led by the U.S., uh, Canada should under flatten. So it's a relative steepener in Canada. It's a relative flattener in the U.S. I really like those trades. I also think that once we put some distance between some of the front-end volatility that we've seen really over the past two or three weeks, it starts to put a lot of focus into, well, what is the byproduct of tapering your bond program? And for me, it's all about swap spreads. You know, I think the build in net supply in a jurisdiction like Canada uh, just means that swap spread should be much more narrower. And that obviously has an implication when you think about some of the cross-currency basis. So, you know, I position for a flatter swap spread curve in Canada. Excellent. This was, this was great. Uh, thanks again for joining us. And uh, yeah, let's have you back on again sometime soon, Ian. Thanks very much. Be well. Thanks, everyone. The information and data contained here and has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. For more information about these legal entities and about the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com. Speakers on this podcast are not research analysts and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc. research department nor should it be construed as a research report. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individuals except where the speaker expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to these instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice.